Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. morning church at this time if you've got a kiddo who is third grade and under and you'd like them to go to their bible study class down the hall while we move into our message here this morning uh miss brooke and miss laquandra are back in the back of the room to take them out and down the hall they love the bible they run to it (laughs) right well, it's good to be back with you this week. I was grateful for Keith West and him filling in last week for us. Uh, my family had a wonderful respite and uh, a chance to get away. We spent time in uh, kind of northwestern, uh, northeastern, I'm sorry, Arkansas, um, out of the range of cell phone service and no Wi-Fi. Um, so for me, it was glorious. My kids had a different experience, uh, as you might can possibly imagine. Um, But we're glad to see you here this morning. Uh, If you're a guest with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. And when you came in, you may have found a card like this and a seat somewhere around you. And uh, if you want to fill that out and leave it at the box at the kiosk in the back of the room, we'll send you some information about us and love to answer any questions you have. On the other side of that's a place for prayer requests. If there are things we could pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. Uh, We don't want you to bear those burdens alone, but want to come alongside of you in prayer and lift you up. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, open with me the book of Colossians. We've been journeying through it together now for several weeks. Book of Colossians chapter 1, the last two verses in chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you don't have a copy in front of you, uh, whether it be digital or paper copy, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together this morning. I invite you to join us as we read Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 28, and we'll read verses 28 and 29. The Apostle Paul writes these words in Colossians 1:28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's word. Uh, Recently, we planted some new shrubs in our front flower beds. Um, I tore them out like last September, and my wife has been asking when I was going to replant them. And so finally, about uh, three or four weeks ago, I replanted some shrubs. Um, But as they have begun to grow, they've begun to put on some buds and even flower a little bit. So I've been very very glad about that. I haven't killed them yet. Uh, But as I thought about the maturation process for plants, it reminded me that whenever plants, as they mature, uh, they do two things. As they they come to maturity, they either flower or they bear fruit, typically. Okay, so you got fruit-bearing plants and you have flower-bearing plants. Uh, And as they mature and they bear fruit or flowers, they become something that's beautiful or useful, Right? As we look at flowers, we find them to be beautiful, and as we eat fruits, we find them to be nourishing and useful. And I thought the same is true about people. As we mature, we begin to flower and bear fruit as well. We produce things that are beautiful and useful in our own maturation process. Let me see if I can put it kind of street level for you this way, with a, to unload the dishwasher. Now, you could, uh, but you wouldn't, 
okay? Uh, because, you know, if you ask your toddler to unload the dishwasher, those dishes are never going to make it to the cabinet. Those utensils will never make it into the drawers. They will end up in someone's ear or in the toy chest, okay? So it's a bad idea to ask your toddler to unload the dishwasher. However, you would ask your grade schooler to unload the dishwasher because they've matured to a place now where they are able to help with those kinds of simple tasks, right? That's fruit produced by their maturation and development. Their maturity is born the fruit of usefulness in those particular ways. The same is true with regards to beauty. You wouldn't expect your toddler to naturally share the toy that they are playing with whenever their friend toddles over and wants to play with that toy. Some of you, I'm right in your wheelhouse right now this morning, right? Nor would you expect that friend to sit by patiently, right? Patiently waiting for your child to be done with the toy that they were playing with until, so that they could play with it. Rather, what happens with toddlers is one is playing with the toy, the other toddles over and grabs the toy. A fight ensues. Parents mediate and referee break through the part, right? Pull the toy out of commission, put it up on a high shelf where no one can reach it, right? To break up the dispute. That's what toddlers do. However, there is a beauty that is put on display the first time a child demonstrates a degree of self-forgetfulness, isn't there? It's, it's a beautiful thing to see. The first time they think about the other more than themselves. That's a flower that's produced by maturation. That maturity has blossomed in that moment into this beauty of self-forgetfulness. Uh, because in our maturation process, we become more useful and more beautiful as we mature. And for a plant to mature, it needs water, the proper amount of sunlight, the proper nutrients in the soil. But for a person to mature physically, we need proper nutrients from our foods. We all recognize that. For a person to mature intellectually, we need proper education to enlighten the mind. For a person to mature emotionally, we need environments where we can safely process our feelings without condemnation and judgment. But what if a person wants to mature spiritually? What if you want to bear fruit and flower spiritually? What if you want to more fully die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ? What if you want to find true life on the other side of self-forgetfulness? To a large degree, that's what spiritual maturity looks like. Self-forgetfulness, denying myself, taking up my cross, and following Christ. What if that's what you're aiming for? So in our text this morning, I think we see there's a particular type of ministry that Paul and Timothy, if you remember at the very beginning of the book of Colossians in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy are addressing the church at Colossae. They're both writing to them. And they're engaged in this particular kind of ministry with a laser-like focus on a specific outcome that they want to see happen. See, they were in the context in which there were swirling winds of doctrine and teaching where people were not content to hear sound doctrine. Instead, they were gathering for themselves teachers who would scratch them where they itched which sounds very familiar to the context in which we live today and which every generation has ever lived in on the face of the earth. And Paul says that he and Timothy are working hard to present everyone everywhere that they encounter mature in Christ as they engage in this particular ministry. And he says, he's not, he doesn't say, hey, we're doing this through small groups. 
Or, hey, we're doing this through service project, or we're doing this through worship music. All of those things are important, and they all have their place. But Paul says he and Timothy are laboring in a specific way with a specific focus on a specific outcome. And I believe that what Paul sets forth in these two verses could serve as a template or a pattern for all ministries, all pastors. This particular text together is this, that there is a central element to our maturity as believers that that pastors and teachers in the church engage in. So I want to consider what that element is, what it involves, where the energy for it comes from, and what we should do about it. That's where we're headed. So what is this particular element that is central to our maturity as believers? And I believe in this text, Paul tells us that preaching is central to your maturity. Preaching is central to your maturity. Now, why do I say that? In this text, Paul uses a word to speak of the kind of ministry that he and Timothy are having as they encounter all people in all places, everyone. He uses that word a couple of times in the passage. And he says, he says essentially what we're doing is this, we're proclaiming. They're making a proclamation. And that word in verse 28 means to announce something or to declare something, to publicly publish something. So for all the peoples to hear. This term was also used in secular writings of its day. And it was used in particular two contexts in secular writings. One, in, in relation to the games, like the Isthmian games or the Corinthian games or the ancient Olympic games, where they would make public declarations or proclamations to inaugurate the games, to commence the games, to close the games, to announce the winners, all of those types of things. But it was also used in government to make proclamations of laws or decrees that have been passed, legislation that have been approved. And there are many scholars and commentators who look at the way that that word was used in its secular usage, and they say that that indicates for us that that term in its context is used to describe a public proclamation, a public declaration, a public announcement of the rule of God over all of creation. So preaching, in an essence, is a public declaration announcing God's rule over all that he has made. And Paul says the preaching ministry that he's engaged in with Timothy, it's for a particular purpose as he announces God's rule over everyone, everywhere. And he says it's so that. Anytime you see those words in the Bible, it indicates a purpose. In other words, here's what I'm doing, here's why I'm doing it. Right? Why Paul is doing this is so that at the end of the age, he could stand before God and present everyone mature in Christ. That's his aim. He wants to see believers grow up in their faith, mature spiritually. He wants to see the church mature as a body of believers. That word mature means perfect or complete. Now, I don't think Paul has in mind sinless perfection here. What I believe he has in mind is this, that there would be a, com a completeness of his declaration so that as he announces the rule of God, proclaims the rule of God over all facets of life, there wouldn't be an area of life that he has not announced God's rule over and helped the church think through the implications of as they sought to mature in their faith. That's what Paul's aiming at. That all people in all places would know that God rules over all things in and through Jesus Christ. So what does this look like? It looks like 
announcing the rule of God over nations and governments, that God ultimately is the highest authority to whom we answer, to whom we are accountable, and to whom our allegiance belongs, that announces God's rule over our money and our marriages, right? what we do with the resources that God has provided us and how we engage with those that God has entrusted to us that we've made a covenant commitment to. That preaching announces the rule of God over our time and our talents. What we do with the hours on the clock every day and with the gifts and abilities that God has given us, they belong to Him. He rules over them. It announces the rule of God over our relationships and our leisure. Listen, students, it announces God's rule over your relationship to your parents. And parents, it announces God's rule over your relationship to your children. And, how, and that you're accountable to him for the ways in which you interact in those relationships. And over your leisure, what you do with the free time that you have. Preaching announces the rule of God over our bodies and our behaviors. Over the, what, how, who it is that God has made us to be and how we embody that in the world. It announces the rule of God over our sexuality and our vocations over what we do with our work life, over what we do with our sex life, and how we understand who we are. Preaching announces the rule of God over our attitudes and our desires, that God rules over even those, or ought to rule over even those fleeting moments in which we are drawn astray to temptation or we have attitudes that are unfitting. Preaching announces the rule of God over all of our cultural and personal idols. That God rules over everything that he's made. It's a public announcement that in and through Christ, God is ruling over all. And listen, here's how this works. As God is set in proper perspective to our idols, to our attitudes, to our desires, to our sexuality, to our vocations, to our bodies, to our behaviors, to our relationships, to our leisure, to our time, talents, money, marriage, nations, and governments. We mature into people who are beautiful and useful as we come under the rule of God in all those areas of life, maturing in our faith, complete. Not perfect, but complete. Because a large part of that process of maturation is becoming self-forgetful, right? Self-forgetful. So my desires take a back seat. My attitude, my, my, my inappropriate attitudes take a back seat. Who I feel myself to be takes a back seat to who God has made me to be. What I want to do with my money and my resources, take a back seat to God owning everything, including every cent that's in my bank account. You see, all these things, we become self-forgetful, not focused on ourselves, but focused on the God who has made everything and rules over everything. So our attention is fixed on him, not on ourselves. And one of the ways, one of the primary ways that God does that is through preaching lifts our eyes from ourselves and places them on God through this public declaration. And so slowly but surely, there is a maturation process as the word is properly proclaimed in which we become more beautiful and like Christ. 
Because that's what Paul says. He wants to present everyone mature in Christ. That is the definition of maturity. That is the definition of beauty in life and of human flourishing that we look and think and act more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. And we become more useful tools in his hands as we engage in the work that he's called us to engage in. Listen, let me see if I can, if I can put it to you this way. In, in this manner, preaching is like protein for your soul. <laughs> okay? If you think about it that way. See, protein is essential to our health. I think most of us in the room recognize that. Okay? Most of us in the room probably don't have any shortage of intake of protein. Because it's a macronutrient, a nutrient that your body needs and uses in very large amounts. It's used for every biochemical reaction in your body. It plays essential roles in providing structure and supporting cells, helping cells communicate with one another, protecting the body from viruses and bacteria. And so low protein intakes has significant health effects. Let me give you a few. One, muscle loss. You can't maintain muscle strength without having protein to rebuild those muscle fibers. It also results, if you have low protein intake, a weakened immune system. Because proteins help your body fight off foreign invaders. It also promotes or results in decreased bone development and density. So your bones are more brittle. They're not as strong. They don't stand up under the weight of stress. You also get hungry more often, more frequently, and more intensely. Because if you have a child, you tell them whenever they're hungry for a snack, that it's going to hold them over until dinner. Don't eat the chips, right? Eat the cheese or the yogurt, right? Because there's protein in that. It's going to satiate your hunger for longer, it also leads to compromised skin and hair development. Some of, some of the girls in here are like, what? What? Right, so if you want that glowing skin and nice flowing hair, right, you need sufficient levels of protein to build that. Right? Protein is essential to life and listen and maturity. I tell you this, preaching is like protein because preaching, when it's done properly, it strengthens our spiritual muscles and at times it gives us the faith and the courage to take steps and use those muscles that we would not have had otherwise. It strengthens our spiritual immune system to ward off false teaching whenever we come into contact with it. It strengthens our spiritual bones so that as we go through suffering and endure hardship, we don't break as easily as we would have because we're lifted up as our eyes are fixed upon the God who made and rules over everything in and through Jesus Christ. It satisfies the deep hunger of our hearts as we're, our eyes are lifted to Jesus. And it makes us into beautiful, self-forgetful people with great hair and great skin. <laughs> Preaching is central to your maturity. It's not the only thing that you need to mature. But in this text, Paul says it's central to your maturity. Now, what does preaching involve? Paul says here that preaching, I believe, is a four-fold work. First of all, preaching is instructional. It's instructional. Verse 28, Paul says, a part of their preaching was teaching. Oftentimes, this word shows up in the context of imparting both theoretical and practical information to people. 
in, in, the, in particular ways it's used throughout the New Testament, it's often referring to doctrinal instruction, right? And the implications that come out of that in life. So there's a part of preaching that involves teaching and instruction, building categories for people, right? To help them understand truths. Second of all, Paul says preaching is persuasive, In verse 28, Paul says a part of their preaching was to make a persuasive moral appeal to their listeners. That shows up in that word warning in the text. That word warning, when we think of warning, right, we often think of like flashing lights going off, sirens, panic buttons, somebody's hitting, okay? All those things give us the connotation of a warning. But in in the way the word was used in Paul's day, it meant to impart understanding, to set someone right, or to impress it upon their heart. So in other words, it was more than just filling their mind with information, okay, or or, or engaging the intellect, but it was also engaging the will to act and persuade people to, 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 to change as a result of what they're hearing, to take a step. So preaching is persuasive, but it's not manipulative. Huh. See, no one should ever stand in a pulpit and try and coerce people with guilt or shame. But everyone who stands in the pulpit ought to try to persuade people with argument and truth. Third, preaching is wise. In verse 28, Paul says, all this public proclamation, the giving of instruction, and the aiming to persuade was done with wisdom. It was done with skill and discernment and discretion, oftentimes knowing what word was needed in the proper situation or in the proper season. Right, so with operating with wisdom, But then fourth, preaching is Christ-centered. Listen, in the beginning of verse 8, Paul says, Him we proclaim. He doesn't say, it we proclaim, or this body of truth we proclaim, or this special knowledge that only we have received we proclaim. He says, Him. Who is the Him? I'm glad you asked. Because in verse 28, the hymn that Paul says he's proclaiming goes stretches all the way back. I'll just give you Colossians chapter 1. The hymn that's being proclaimed is Jesus, who is the definitive picture of God, the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation with authority over everything. By him, through him, and for him, everything that was made has been made, the source, agent, and goal of all creation. He sustains all things. He's the head of the church. He takes first place by virtue of his resurrection. He is the incarnate son of God. He's our reconciler and peacemaker. As Keith showed us last week, he is the mystery hidden for ages and generations that has now been revealed to God's people. He's dwelling in us. Jesus is dwelling in us by his spirit, which is our expectation for future glory. Paul says, him we proclaim. Our preaching is centered on Christ, warning everyone, teaching everyone everywhere so that we may present them mature in Christ. So preaching is this fourfold work. It's instructional, persuasive, wise, Christ-centered. But let me tell you why I say it's work. In verse 29, Paul says this, For this I toil, struggling. 
The for this in verse 29 refers back to the maturity of all believers in Christ through his public preaching ministry. And the word toil, listen, it means more than just work. It means more than just labor. In fact, that word focuses on the weariness or the tiredness that comes about through the exertion that is given in labor. Right? It might be akin to our word of exhaustion. Right? Being exhausted at the end of a hard day's work. So Paul's saying that he is presently in this state of exhaustion from the preaching ministry to present everyone everywhere mature in Christ. And then the word struggling, right, it modifies, I, get, I know I get geeky sometimes, it modifies the word toil. It's a participle modifying the verb. And it literally means this, to struggle, to strive, or to fight. So Paul says when it comes to preaching, it produces a type of weariness through labor, and the struggle is real. That's what he says. And I love the way Sam Storms comments on this and uh, uh, on this passage in a work of his. He says this. I want you to hear him. He says, the reason it requires toil and struggling is not hard to understand. And I would add to anyone who's ever preached, right, they, they, I don't even have to explain it to them. On, he says, on one hand, there are our own fleshly desires and bodily weaknesses to contend with. The physical demands of ministry are obvious. For people like Paul, one must also include persecution and pain and imprisonment. There's also the instinctive tendency toward laziness and self-indulgence. We are prone to quit when times get tough. It's so much easier just to give up and walk away. The frustration and discouragement and disillusionment of dealing with human sin on a daily basis make it all too easy to rationalize abandoning the hard work of ministry. And Sam Storm is just talking about himself there. (laughs) And I can relate. Then he says, notwithstanding, right, we shouldn't forget the obstacles to ministry posed by those to whom we minister. Our best and most compassionate efforts to be of help. Often, people often want nothing more than to argue and dispute our doctrine. When you expend yourself in the service of another and you receive in return, what you receive in return, either in gratitude or the misinterpretation of your motives and the slander it so often brings, it's hard to stay the course. To use Paul's words, it's a struggle. As if that were enough, we also have to do battle with the devil. The daily barrage of accusation, temptation, and multiple efforts to undermine what we have accomplished weighs heavily on the human soul. Paul says preaching is work. It's labor, it's toil. There is a a struggle and an an exhaustion at times that comes from it, from this fourfold work of instruction, of persuasion, of exercising that in wisdom and pointing people to Christ. So if if it's toil, then where do we get the power to do it? Listen, preaching that is real preaching, it relies on God's power. Look at what Paul says in the text. In verse 29, he says that he continues to minister, not in his own strength, but with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So it's God's energy that's working within Paul to continue this public proclamation in the face of opposition and resistance and disappointment and discouragement and disillusionment. 
Now, it's important to recognize at this point the kind of power in preaching necessary for our maturity, listen, is not the power of personality, okay? There's a lot of power of personality in pulpits across the nation. There are many who have very winsome personalities, right? They have very, very high uh, uh, um, abilities to persuade people, and oftentimes it turns to the manipulation and coercion of people based upon the winsomeness of their personality. That is not the kind of power that we're talking about. We're talking about Holy Spirit shows up in, in Corinth. He doesn't say, hey, when I came to you, listen, I was just like one of your orators. He didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, I relied on the winsomeness of my personality and the eloquence of my words. But what does he say? I knew nothing among you other than Christ and him crucified. And that's how God worked among you. Because the Holy Spirit was working through that. Not through the winsomeness of my personality. Because anyone who's going to continue in ministry recognizes there's got to be a power that comes from outside of them. In the same way that a car cannot run on self-determination. Have you ever tried that? <laughs> All right. Your, your vehicle, though it has a brain now, most of them, okay? It's called a Peter, right? It cannot self-determine itself to run. And you cannot self-determine it to run. It needs fuel. Whether that comes from a battery pack that you've plugged it into as an electric car, whether it comes from a combination of internal combustion and electric motors, or whether it comes from full, full unleaded gasoline or diesel, right? It needs fuel to run. And so does everyone in ministry. And so we cannot forget that no matter how winsome a personality someone may have as they present and communicate, listen, what is the test of true ministry, right, is whether or not the Holy Spirit's working in and through that person to bring about life change in people. So you ought to test somebody's preaching, not by how entertaining it is, but by how effective it is at bringing about change in your life. So listen, now that I've said all this, I want to close by asking this question, what should we do with it? If preaching is central to our maturity and involves instruction and persuasion and wisdom, being Christ-centered and relying upon the Holy Spirit's power, then what do, what, do, what do you, what do we as a congregation do with this? I've said this before, and I'll say it again this morning, and I'll probably say it again some other time in the future. It's just the way preaching works. But I just want to admonish you this morning to prioritize the preached word. Prioritize the preached word. Now listen, I'm not saying prioritize the preacher. Okay? It's a very different statement. Prioritize the preached word. Right? And I feel like I can say this with a more degree of integrity now than I could years ago because now we have more people coming through this pulpit. So that means whenever Charles preaches, you shouldn't prioritize Charles. You should prioritize the preached word. It means when Keith preaches, you shouldn't prioritize Keith, but you should prioritize the preached word. It means whenever Stanley may preach, I think in a couple of weeks, you shouldn't prioritize Stanley, but you should prioritize the preached word. It means whenever I preach, you shouldn't prioritize me, you should prioritize the preached word. And let me tell you, there are two reasons for this, I believe. 
built on everything I've said thus far from this passage. First of all, I believe it honors those who toil and struggle. Let me say it this way. Most pastors, unless they can breathe in that real thin air, okay, up high on Mount Everest, all right, um, and they're phenomenally gifted by God, they spend anywhere from 10 to 15, some 20 hours a week working on a sermon. They spend time praying over and studying the text itself, reading scholars and other preachers, letting those truths in the text marinate in their own hearts and minds, talking them over with others, considering illustrations to help make that truth clear and compelling, doing some writing to fill in the gaps and make sure transitions are moving and flowing to where people can understand them, how it applies in their cultural context, praying through how it intersects with their life personally, and standing up to teach with some degree of authenticity. Listen, there, when, when, when Charles or Keith or Stanley or I or whoever else who may fill this pulpit in the future stand up to preach, we ought to prioritize the preached word because they have been laboring and toiling and struggling in it all week with you on their hearts. With you on their hearts. Listen, whenever I prepare, I don't have on my heart some, some uh, podcast audience. <laughs> I'm not thinking of how far the video is going to go. I'm thinking about families in our church who need to hear what God has said. So prioritize the preach word because it honors those who struggle and toil. In 1 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy in the church at Ephesus that the elders who exercise their teaching gifts well should be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor. I believe a part of that honoring of those who are laboring and toiling is being present when the word is preached and prioritizing the preached word. Not the pastor who's preaching it, but the preached word because they've been laboring and toiling in it. So it doesn't become a situation where well, I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ, right? It becomes a situation where I'm prioritizing the preached word, whoever's in this pulpit, because I want to honor the labor and toil that they have been struggling in all week long. The second thing is this. It's a means to your maturation. It really is, church. Now, I'm not saying that God can only work on Sundays, Okay? God can work Monday night. He can work Wednesday morning. He can even work Monday morning. <laughs> he, can, he can choose to intercept your life at any moment. But one of the means of grace that God has given to promote your maturity is the preached word. See, being under the word rightly preached 40 to 45 Sundays a year will have a monumental and compounding, sanctifying effect in your life. Right? That one message may not, right? That one message may, like a rifle, penetrate someone this week. And next week it may penetrate someone else. And for you, it's like, oh, that was good. Right? The next week it may penetrate someone else, and you're like, man, I maybe got something out of that. Right? But I tell you, what I'll tell you is this is that as you sit under God's word, as you engage in God's word, as you prioritize it week after week after week as it's preached, right? And we could talk all day long about, yes, you need to read it also for yourself, and you need to measure what's being preached against God's word. But what I'm saying to you, when the word is rightly preached, it has this compounding effect. 
So that it may not happen today and it may not happen next week, but over the course of time, you become persuaded of something that is true from God's word because it has compounded in your life, in your mind, in your will. And then let's say a year and a half, you take the step of faith that you would never have taken a year and a half ago because God has been strengthening those muscles as his word has been preached. It's a means to your maturation. But also, and I'll use a, a movie title here, I'm not, not, uh, I'm not promoting the movie, I'm not endorsing the movie, I just think it's a, a good way to phrase this, right? That any given Sunday, God could wreck your life with His grace. Any given Sunday, God could turn your world right side up. Any given Sunday, God could reset your priorities and change your trajectory. He could expose sin in your life that's been hiding under the surface and out of sight. Any given Sunday, God could set your heart free from the grip of selfishness and consumerism. God could awaken and illumine and set ablaze your heart that has been cold or dark or lifeless. Any given Sunday, God could open your eyes so that you realize you never really crossed the line of faith. You walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer and you took a preacher's hand, but you never, you never died to yourself. You never took up your cross and you're not following Christ. You've never been born again. Any given Sunday, God could burden your heart to such a degree for the loss that you share your faith with the neighbor for the first time or a friend at school for the first time. Any given Sunday, God could send you out to launch a new life group, start a new ministry, burden your heart, plant a seed that might grow over the course of time, and you may step out and plant a church or spend your life in some desert, in some valley, or on some mountaintop, or on some island with peoples in a place who've never heard the name of Christ. He could do that any given Sunday. Any given Sunday, God could uncover prejudices in our lives. We could walk, any given Sunday, God could pluck us from the corporate world and, sell, and, and convince us and persuade us that the rest of our lives, all our vocational energies need to go to ministry in his church. Not everyone, but some. Any given Sunday. As the word is rightly preached, regardless of who's in the pulpit. So it may have a compounding effect over, on your life over the course of time, but it may also have a penetrating effect any given Sunday. See, if we want to mature, we have to avail ourselves of the means of grace that God has given us to do so. And one of those means that Paul addresses here is the public proclamation of the rule of God over all of life in and through Jesus Christ. And as we labor, as we toil, as we struggle to present him to you Sunday after Sunday, my hope would be you'd prioritize that. To honor those who are toiling. And as a means to your maturation. So that I and you 
could unload the dishwasher. So that both of us, all of us, would give away the toy in our self-forgetfulness because our eyes are fixed on Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for the means of grace you've given us. And while there are others, this text references particularly the public proclamation of Christ as Lord over all. Father, I I look forward to one day being able to stand before you as humbling and as fearful as that may be. But Lord, it is what drives me Sunday after Sunday to open your word and try by the best of my feeble abilities to feed your people. And I know that's what drives the others who fill this pulpit as well. This is not about any of us. It's ultimately about your work and your people. So Father, would you use what you have prescribed So at the end of the age, there's no area of life that we did not aim to bring under the rule of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning, church, as we sing in response to what God has said. Now, He's faithful. He is faithful to use what he has prescribed to work in his people, to bring them to maturity in his glory. So let's celebrate that this morning. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through his word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church. But tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.